Welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Paris Jackson, the host of Crosscut Now on KCTS 9 and the host for this podcast. Today for this episode, we're talking about the climate change crisis and practical solutions. Climate scientist and University of Minnesota professor, Dr. Heidi Roop, and environmental and climate justice leader and strategist, Jamie Strobel, dived into the complex issue during a discussion in May at the Crosscut Ideas Festival in Seattle. The impacts of climate change are everywhere, often making news headlines, yet most Americans don't know what it really is, or as Dr. Roop suggests, don't think it will harm them. Roop and Strobel explain you can't talk about climate change without acknowledging the long-standing inequities and structural barriers that most often impact marginalized communities. In this conversation, Strobel shares why existing environmental injustices in BIPOC neighborhoods and communities are exacerbated by climate change, how the lack of BIPOC representation led her to advocacy work in Washington state's largest county, and how young people's activism inspires her. Dr. Roop shares her viewpoint on tangible solutions we can all take, and how as a climate scientist, she toes the line between data and human connection. Roop says facts and figures don't change minds, people do. I hope you enjoy this important conversation. Please share your feedback on the podcast with us by sending it to talks at crosscut.com. Now let's get into it. Thank you all for joining us and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. My name is Heidi Roop. I am a climate scientist a professor at the University of Minnesota, always still weird to say, um, and most recently the author of the Climate Action Handbook, 100 Climate Solutions for Everyone. Um, it's a visual guide, and many of the graphics are behind us today. Um, you can't necessarily read them from here, but there are books in the lobby. Um, but we are here to talk about climate change. Uh, it's five o'clock. We appreciate we stand between you and probably some sort of beverage. Uh, maybe a nice meal. Um, so we are here not to talk about the doom and gloom reality of climate change, but critically solutions and the ways that many of us show up for and to motivate more solutions and critically to think about how as we work to address climate change, we seek to address many of the inequities and structural barriers that prevent us from creating and shaping the world I think many of us want to see. Um, so I'm very excited today to be joined um, by Jamie Strobel, and I will introduce her in a minute, but I want to provide you with a bit of context about what we hope to do today. Um, so climate change. We know from newspaper headlines to the detailed scientific reports that folks like me and my colleagues produce and the lived experiences that probably most of you have had over recent years, um, that climate change impacts as well as conversations and information they surround us. Yet, most Americans don't hear about climate change in the news on a regular basis, and even fewer think that climate change will harm them personally. We know from lived experiences here in the Pacific Northwest that that is, quite frankly, not the case. In good news, a majority of Americans also want to see solutions. We've moved in many ways from climate change being an issue we can't believe in to one where we're increasingly arguing not about the reality of its existence, but rather what solutions work, who's accountable, who gets to benefit from the solutions, and critically, who pays. 
So as we live through a critical decade for both climate mitigation, which is preventing the problem from getting worse, as well as climate adaptation, that's preparing for the climate changes that we have frankly already set in motion and committed to, that there's an urgency to act. We hear that a lot. There's also an abundance of opportunity for each one of us to show up as part of the solution. We can show up in solutions as individuals, in our communities, and to critically advance collective change and action. So today's conversation is really an opportunity to showcase those opportunities and the different ways that we can leverage our strengths, our experiences, our perspectives, and our expertise to chart an impactful climate solutions journey. And so in that, it's in that context we're gonna be talking about this journey, this how do we move forward from today over this next critical decade to grapple with and confront this incredible challenge. So how do we do that? We do that with people like Jamie Strobel, who is a thought leader and an environmental justice leader, and I'm really happy to say one of my dear friends. Jamie, this is amazing, I can't even start here. So I just don't wanna miss anything, so I'm gonna look closely at my screen because there's so many amazing things. Jamie wears many hats um, and has many accolades. So to just name a few, um, she was the founder of the Climate Justice Framework for King County's 2020 Strategic Climate Action Plan. If you haven't read a copy, I encourage you to do so. She's currently a Seattle Planning Commissioner. She's walking the walk, making hard decisions that include climate. And she's the Climate Director at the Nature Conservancy of Washington. She's also the founder of the Environmental Justice Community Capacity Building Project called Noyo Pathways. Um, she's frankly one of my climate heroes, someone I'm looking forward to you all being able to learn from today as well. Um, and she has worked for years across the Pacific Northwest and beyond to really work to advance not only climate solutions, but climate and environmental justice. So thank you for being here today, Jamie, and thank you all for joining us. All right, Jamie, since this is really about you, and I always learn something new when we have a chat, um, I'd love for you to talk to us. You know, sort of pulled on this line of this climate solutions journey, and so I'd love for you just to sort of tell us a little bit about what brought you here to your journey today? How are you, maybe we'll, we'll talk at the end about where you're going, um, but what does your journey look like to date? What, what brings you to this climate, this climate work? Well, I wanna start off, like this is a conversation because Heidi is also pretty rad <laughs> and, um, and just wrote this amazing book that you'll see the, the images of um, up top. And we originally met because uh, she was working at the University of Washington's Climate Impacts Group. And I was at the time trying to work on um, establishing the climate justice plan at King County. And I, um, and I was like, you know, we just don't have enough information out there to be able to talk about climate change, to even just communicate it and not just uh, amongst the people who are already believers, but um, how do we reach communities and work with communities so that how they're talking about climate change actually reaches decision makers? <laughs> because a lot of times we think, oh, well, these people don't know about climate change or they're not, you know, we need to do things so that they um, understand the issue better. And the reality is that like, most communities, especially communities of color, are living with those impacts every day. And so they're like, oh no, we know what the, what's happening. It's just we don't know how to translate that into language that our decision makers will understand. Um, and so we, we met through that and we're doing a bunch of uh, workshops and climate communications workshops and trying to work with decision makers to really understand like the language of climate inequity. 
Um, but anyway, I went off track from your original question. <laughs> Just because I wanted you to know that this is an amazing collaborator as well. Um, so, you know, I, I originally grew up in Hawaii and, um, you know, really developed a strong connection to land and water and, um, and really seeing every day, you know, I was in the ocean probably four or five days a week as a competitive canoe paddler. I think and you still are. <laughs> now it's three days and the water is Lake Washington. <laughs> there isn't um, exactly as much sun to keep you warm sun, and golden um, um, here in the gloomy It's a little different. Uh, but, uh, but that, you know, I, it's really like a lot of this work about um, environmental issues and degradation and climate change is so much about our relationship to land and to resources and to the environment. And we have, in so many ways, our society and systems have developed a bit of a toxic relationship. Um, and what are ways that we can kind of undo those systems and then try to, to build something that is better and re reestablish that like right relationship. Um, so that was really informative to shaping my, um, my approach to things. I, um, when I moved up to Washington about 19, almost 19 years at this point, um, I, uh, I thought it was going to be a botanist. I was like, I'm going to go study and like native plants and we're going to go restore things and we're going <laughs> to, and, um, and I, I lived in this apartment building that was right next to I-5 and my bedroom window would face the freeway off ramp. And um, in the summers I would throw open my window because it'd be really hot and I would develop this like layer of black dust on my windowsill. And at the time I would just like wipe it away and be like, oh, that's gross, it's right next to my bed. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't until years later when I was working in indoor and outdoor air quality and working for with some of our tribal communities here that I realized that, you know, I was breathing all of that in and I was at a higher risk for cancer. I was at, um, you know, but the reason I lived there was because it was cheaper. And, um, and what we see with climate change is that we already have a lot of environmental injustices that are present in our, in our uh, neighborhoods and communities. And what climate change is doing is exacerbating that. And you, know, you may have heard it being called that threat multiplier that's making existing inequities worse. Um, and so later when I worked in um, the Chinatown International District and was running you know, youth programs for Asian and Pacific Islander high school students, we're in a neighborhood that was experiencing a lot of heat waves and you know, lack of tree canopy coverage and then also have faced the legacy of a lot of like straight up racist planning practices where I-5 was built through the neighborhood and you know we're surrounded by I-5 and I-90 and the bus tunnel and there's tons of traffic that goes through that neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that was historically redlined. Um, and all of that legacy has an impact in how we are approaching things today and we have not fully dealt with a lot of that, right? Um, there was a, when I was at King County, I worked on a, um, on a project where we mapped urban heat across the whole county. And we um, had these little snorkels attached to the car and drove around these specific transects three times throughout the day to kind of get a sense of you know, how heat, how hot it was on the hottest day of the year, and then how that heat was retained. Because if you have more concrete, it stays hotter throughout the whole day. 
And what we found was that, you know, it's the neighborhoods that there's actually a correlation between the neighborhoods that were historically redlined and those experiencing extreme heat now. Um, the researchers we worked with on this have now actually done this across multiple jurisdictions. Um, they've done it in Tacoma and in, um, I think in Boston and then in, in Honolulu actually as well. And there was a New York Times article where they're like, put the two maps next to each other. Of like, here's the redlining map and here's the like, here's the heat map. And, um, and so, so much of like the work I've done has been with um, communities of color and, you know, immigrant refugee communities um, and seeing how they're often the ones facing the brunt of climate change and, um, and, I, and I also noticed at the same time that I would show up to these like decision-making rooms and, um, and there was nobody that looked like us at those decision tables. And I realized that not only do we have like the issue of what's happening on the ground, but we had an issue of representation too. And so I had applied, actually applied to the planning commission because I was like, I think I wanna be at this table. Um, it was a time when we were talking about affordable housing crisis and, um, and I had continued to move farther and farther outside of the city, of, of the inner core of the city um, due to housing costs. And, and I think like for me, so many of the community organizations I've worked with, we're seeing how the issue of climate change is intersectional and how house, affordable housing is connected and parks and health and, um, and, but it wasn't being talked about in that way by our decision makers and in government. And so I was like, well, I'm going there next. Systems change, let's go, let's go. I went to the King County after that and spent five years trying to build out that plan and to really make sure that communities our frontline communities, so those who are at the, the front lines of climate change, um, were part of the ones actually shaping and deciding on policy, and that we got that supported and resourced and funded and passed through council um, to really kind of shift institutional change. And I know a big theme. So are you seeing that out of curiosity? <laughs> are there, are, you know, are there solutions? I think you've been at this long enough, and right, the plan was from 2020. You've been doing this work for a while. You're, you're a commissioner. Right? You're, you're, uh, you have a seat at the table now. Um, mm -hmm. What, what can you share with us? What's being done? You know, how yeah. are we responding? Say maybe specifically to the to the heat island effect and that redlining. Are there? Are we implementing or addressing any of these issues that are yeah. so clearly front and center? <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, we are really leading as a region around these issues. Um, there's you know, analyses that are happening and mapping efforts that are happening around prioritizing the areas of both the city and the county that should be you know, priority, priority areas for purchasing and um, turning into parks and open space, that there are, efforts to look at tree canopy coverage and be intentional about planting there first. There has been, um, even the program I started, um, that budget has now gone up and is I think tripled now. And there's, a, there's an internship program that I started because I, when I started it was the only person of color um, on, my permanent, on the permanent staff on my team. And um, since then, now they have multiple people and there's jobs that they created and a permanent uh, next generation internship program focused on getting underrepresented people into the climate space. And so, um, so there has been a big shift. And 
Um, that doesn't mean, though, that we've solved climate change yeah. and that we've yeah. solved um, inequity, right? Like we uh, we still have so much work ahead of us because there's also that like accountability piece. And I know um, so much of what we're going to talk about today is around like system, the difference with like individual versus systems change. Um, so I'd like to ask you questions too. Okay. This is our, this is our, we're just like, oh <laughs> great, banter. we get to hang out together. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, um, so I, you know, I'm curious about uh, how, what inspired you to shift your focus to climate solutions and the use of application of climate science because I know you were you were like studying ice cores and and very much like in the science of it and um, so how did you get from there of you know working to generate research and facts and figures to working on like the systems of climate change yeah I wish I had a straightforward answer I still work on ice <laughs> cores you know some habits die hard right um, <laughs> Once a scientist, always a scientist. Um, I think really it just was so clear that what the scientific community do, was doing, the climate science community, the way we were clearly incapable <laughs> of communicating and motivating. And I mean, we all know, right, very clearly, like facts and figures don't change hearts and minds, but people do. And I think so often the, we try to train the person out of the scientist. And of course, yet we are all still people with multiple identities that have families and crises and things we care about and different things we value and different faiths. And we show up and walk through the world in very different ways. And, and so I think for me, it just felt really insufficient to really just generate data and not be, and say very clearly time and again, there's a problem, right? I study past climate. Um, we know, for example, the climate we're living through today is at least unprecedented. The, the rate of temperature warming is unprecedented in at least the last 2,000 years. Um, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is unprecedented for at least the last 800,000 years, um, likely over 3 million years, right? And yet, okay, great, Heidi. Like that really, even just those numbers, what do they mean? Like what do they mean for me? And so I felt that really working in solutions, but I think more importantly, showing up in a space where I could think about how what I knew could be in service of maybe listening and learning from what others know and really trying to understand where are those decision points? Where do decisions get made, um, right? It's one thing, again, to measure the urban heat island effect and another to say, now what do we do? And how, we do, how, we do, how do we do it fast enough? And how do we do it in a right way? Um, and so I think that has been really rewarding um, and it's been a really steep learning curve um, to think about the multitude of different types of sciences and knowledge that inform climate change related decision making, right? It isn't necessarily principally about just collecting data about how much the planet is warming or how quickly those things are important. They come to bear on what decisions we make and why and how we make certain decisions, but so do all the other things, all the other sciences. There's behavioral science, there's policy science, there's a multitude of social sciences, right? There's so much just relational work that is at the heart of actually doing something about climate change. And I am feeling privileged to sit in a place where I've been able to create a career that allows me to sort of do both of those things um, because it also keeps me going because um, it's, pretty disheartening to create another study of yet another like, all oh, right, 
we're still not doing enough and the planet's still warming and here we go. Um, we now need to go even further back in time to try to constrain what we think the future might look like because there's no analog in the nearer geologic past. We'll be back with more after this. At Amazon, there's a way up for anyone because there's something for everyone. Like Jessica, who completed free technical training programs and is getting her bachelor's with Amazon's prepaid tuition. Even if you have no knowledge or no experience in IT, Amazon has the tools and the resources to teach you. I've been promoted three times and it's been a significant boost in pay for me. Free technical training programs at Amazon move full-time and part-time employees into higher paying jobs. Visit aboutamazon.com for more info. What I love about the work that you've done too is, is it's, you know, we also need to be able to effectively communicate that science and we haven't done the greatest job in the past. You know, there's all of this research out there about like, we shouldn't have ever called it global warming because people, people confuse that with like, well, it got really cold or why is it, you know, I know you have lots of thoughts. <laughs> well, and global warming and climate change are two different things, right? We could talk about the science, but global warming is really the physics of the atmosphere and how it warms. And right, anyway, we don't need to go yeah. there, but yes, messaging matters. And I think most importantly, the messenger matters. And I am one messenger. There are people who trust me. They're my family and friends, right? They, we are all the messengers and that is so important. And the message is also uniquely ours, right? And again, it's not about being able to rattle off that the planet is warmed by X number of degrees since 1895. It's about, did you know that the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest was unprecedented and was impossible to happen in the absence of human caused climate change. And we expect that to occur more regularly. Are we ready for that? How can we protect one another? How do we protect our family and friends? What does that mean for the systems that need to function in a very different climate context? And that's where I think the solution space is today and where we need to do more. So I'm gonna lob you the hardball question, which is oh, one I get all the time. <laughs> and actually a question and sort of an academic debate, so I wanna not make it academic. Um, an academic debate that seems pretty black and white, which is that individual actions don't matter because climate change is systems change and we have to change the systems, right? In the same way that we have to think about environmental justice and, and racism and these inequities, right? There are systems that uphold those. So do our actions and our individual conversations even really matter? Mm -hmm. I'd like your take. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think the reality is that systems are made up of people. And if we aren't able to connect with those people and influence who those people are in those, in those places of power and decision-making roles, then, um, then we're not gonna change those systems, right? Um, I also think that sometimes we write off the little things that we do as kind of like, oh, well, that doesn't make it. I turned off the light switch in my house. That's not going to make a difference in um, the amount of greenhouse gases my house uses, right? Um, but the reality is that there's so much more in that relationship piece that is very much individual action, right? I think about like, what is your sphere of influence? And 
um, you know, I can move my my family member to maybe vote differently than they did before, or I can. You can. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a different debate. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I like your tips on that one. <laughs> um, but I I also you know especially because I've done a lot of youth work and work with young people, I I consider that some of the most important climate solutions is like supporting the leadership of young people. Um, the fire in the next generation is just so impressive. Um, and it is our, our responsibility to be opening doors for them and to be giving them a platform and giving them the space to, to fight for the planet in the future that they're inheriting from a lot of us. Do you and, think, but do you think we also have to listen I guess I feel a tension there was sort of like, I, I think I, I guess that's something I grapple with a lot is like, how do I honor that and like keep that fire lit? Because mm -hmm. I do think it's, you know, we think about the Sunrise Movement, all sorts of other youth led climate movements, like yeah. they're the ones that really have kind of pushed. I mean, we in Seattle, right, is home to, to some really amazing youth climate leaders mm -hmm. um, who really have moved, moved the dial and um, it's really impressive, but I wonder if um, I'm putting myself, I got wrinkles now and you know, the years keep <laughs> passing somehow. Um, put myself in the older camp now of like, well then how do I use the resources, the access, the other thing, like I guess I don't wanna wait for the, like how do we listen more because we, we do have this tension with time mm -hmm. um, and that this sort of urgency. So I love you, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Like listen like, more to young people? Or? Yeah, like if there's this fire, are we really honoring that fire? Like how do we remove more barriers? Um, or how do we listen and onboard maybe that vision or aspects of that vision to, to move towards solutions, acknowledging that, I mean, increasingly this is less true, but a lot of the people who hold power are not necessarily the ones with the fire or who are youthful. Um, yeah, I think this gets maybe back they're to, youthful, but they're not young. Yeah, I think this um, gets so, back to your question though of like individual versus systemic action because um, there are like I think it's also about like the power of collective action and um, and it's not just like how do I get this group of youth to be in front of this like decision maker because sometimes we can't wait around for those decision makers to make that decision, right? I think there's also a piece about, um, well, I guess I'll, I'll tell a little story. I One of the things that's most inspiring to me is um, how Washington State got statewide free transit passes for young people. That didn't just happen out of the blue, right? That was actually a lot of activism that came directly from young people. Um, in the city of Seattle, you know, this is I think back in 2015, um, students from Rainier Beach High School were like, you couldn't get a free bus pass unless you lived more than two miles away from the school. And if you lived 1.99 miles away, you didn't get a free bus pass. And the students w that I worked with said, you know, uh, 1.99 miles to walk to, rain to high school is different in my neighborhood than it is for another neighborhood. Um, on top of that, not all of our not all of our students have like a parent that can drive them to school or um, I, you know some other way. So I literally had youth in my program who would come to me and say, you know, do you have change so that I can take the bus home after after our program is done? 
And I would just keep a roll of quarters in my desk just for that. And, um, and they, they were the ones that advocated originally and said, like, just started as a pilot, just a small pilot, you know, just maybe for all the kids in free and reduced lunch first and just see how it goes. And as a result of that, they saw, you know, attendance rates going up and grades were going up and, and graduation rates were going up. And they're like, see, it works. Like you support kids and you remove barriers for them to get to school. It has a ripple effect. There's also been a lot of research that says like if you ride transit, public transit as a, as a kid, that you're more likely to ride it as an adult. And so it's also a climate solution. <laughs> Right. And yep. and their advocacy, you know, then it grew to like, well, the whole high school. Now it's all, you know, kids on free and reduced lunch across the entire Seattle school district. Um, and then it expanded out from there and then it became all the students in Seattle public schools. And this last year was so pivotal because youth advocated and we got statewide transit passes for young people, which, you know, that removes so many barriers when you think about, you know, being able to have a job after school, being able to go to a youth program, being able to, um, you know, learn how to ride public transit and then use that as an adult, right? And to me, that was so inspiring. I tell that story whenever I do youth workshops with, with students. I say, you know, a lot of our youth are like, I'm not 18 yet, I can't vote, I can't yeah. do anything, I have no power. And I say, look at what these students did. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that, I mean, I think, so I used to work at the University of Washington and had a great opportunity to work with so many leaders. And I think when people ask me about, you know, this individual action question, I think so often the really impressive examples of systems-based change can be often traced back to one deeply passionate, often persistent individual. There's all sorts of state agencies in Washington state that have been transformed, like the requirement to consider climate change and how toxic wastes are managed and where toxic, toxic waste sites exist now happens. That did not happen before. There's a thing called sea level rise, matters here, matters in <laughs> all of coastal Washington. Um, and single individuals have transformed how agencies work, how rules work. And so I think, um, yes, it's about all the things, but so often that those systems-based change, are they're catalyzed by individuals or a small collective of people who can really move the dial for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Then we all benefit from that leadership. Yeah, and um, working with young people too, it's, it's sometimes it's like, I see how passionate you are about this and they're like, I don't, but I don't know how to navigate the system. I don't know who to ask. I don't know who makes the decision on who funds these things. And it's sometimes just like that one teacher who's like, let yeah. me get you connected. Or it's sometimes, you know, the one mentor, you know, even with, um, and that's also why it's been like so important to me to support the next generation of climate leaders is because sometimes it just takes that one person to say, I see this, I see what yeah. you're doing, you got this. The other day I was at a, um, a community event and I got pulled aside by this, by this young woman and I didn't recognize her at first and she's like, Jamie, like, I was in your leadership program. I was in your workshop. And she's this amazing person who, um, you know, had worked as a crossing guard for a while. And, uh, and she's like, after that, 
it made me want to work on environmental issues. It made me want to do this. And that was the whole point of that program too, That's was awesome. to like take those like hidden leaders and give them the tools, give them the mm -hmm. language, give them the resources. And she's like, I'm now working for a public agency on environmental justice and community engagement. And That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. We're going to take a pause real quick and just if you have questions, we're going to get there here in like a couple minutes. Um, so if you have some questions you'd like us to answer, they magically appear on this tablet. Technology is amazing. Um, you can go to slido.com. Um, you can open the app and enter the hashtag big ideas. It's there on the screen behind us, but just this is a time to enter questions and they will the magic will happen here and we can um, start start answering those. But maybe we can do one more question before we launch into audience It depends questions. on how long we take to tell stories. <laughs> I know, you're a good storyteller. I think we could do two. Two? Okay, Maybe. we'll Let's be ambitious. Because right. I want to hear about the Climate Action Handbook okay. and, um, and how you, we've talked about kind of like, how do you measure impact? And a lot of times you'll, you'll see things where it's like we're measuring literally the 0.02 metric tons, um, you know, emissions reduced, right? And and I noticed that you kind of avoid to quantify impact in your book and maybe tell, tell me why. And um, don't we want to focus on actions that reduce the most greenhouse gas emissions? Yes, great question. <laughs> Something I grappled with. I think the primary motivation, so there are a lot of wonderful resources out there like Project Drawdown, which I, which I drew on heavily. I oh, draw down heavily, I drew <laughs> on heavily for the book in terms of quanti quantifying emissions reduced or avoided um, for different climate actions like the light bulbs or solar panels on your roof or buying the electric vehicle. All of those things matter. So as we think about a climate solutions kind of coin, I think about it as sort of two sides um, or balancing an equation. We have to both reduce emissions um, and in, now we actually have to start removing them from the atmosphere if we're going to try to achieve some of the climate targets and goals set by the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, so we have to mitigate. We have to prevent the problem. We also have to prepare, right? The really difficult reality we face is that we know we've set change in motion. We've committed to change. Um, for example, there are certain climate impacts that are only going in one direction for a very long time. Sea levels will continue to rise for at least the next 1,500 years. We don't get to choose whether we prepare for that or not. Well, we do. We just pay the consequences of not being prepared. Um, how fast sea level will rise, how much it will rise, those are actually some of the most interesting questions that we have in the climate science community right now. Uh, but we also know very clearly that we've committed to these changes. Um, we've committed to planetary warming. The planet will continue to get warm. So yes, we need to mitigate. But there is also a multitude of things that we can do to stop gatekeeping. Who gets to be part of the climate solutions in broadly? Who gets to have an impact? What that imp impact is? What, that, what impact matters? Um, most of you don't really, and I still struggle, like what does a gigaton of carbon even look like, right? It's, it's really difficult to conceptualize. So do we use that as a way to motivate people not doing things? I think so. Or saying what you're doing doesn't really count because I reduce more emissions because I, I own a home and you rent a home and I can put solar panels on and you don't have that agency. Does that mean you can't be impactful? I don't think so. And I think we've missed an opportunity for a long time saying that because you've avoided this many emissions or you've done this thing, then all these other things that we can do in our daily lives and the systems we can influence 
those are also impactful and they're impactful in a different way. And so I tried to not equate impact with emissions, but instead equate impact with showing up, showing up again and again, avoiding single action bias, doing the one thing and checking that box and moving on to the next thing, right? Really trying to think about how do you make climate solutions part of your daily journey and how do you acknowledge that what you can do today might be different down the road, right? Many of us live in very different, we have different experiences, we have access to different resources, we live in, we have different cultures and backgrounds and values, but that should not prevent us from being able to create a portfolio of climate solutions that work for us, but then can also change over time. That we ourselves can be adaptable in how we do our work, right? Or how we save resources. So part of this idea of the climate solutions journey was really about how do we map a path forward and how do you chart your own unique path forward that maybe works for your family? Like I am not in a position right now to buy an electric vehicle. It's on the horizon, right? So like that's a goal I've set. Um, I wanna do that. Um, just not, I had to upgrade the electrical system in my 1905 house. Turns out that's really expensive. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I, it took us years to even just save up for that, right? Like there's sometimes the stepwise process. So to say, do this thing, and that's what matters. I sort of realized in my own education and writing this book, it was really about my own being like, well, I don't know if I'm doing enough and what is enough and what are my strengths and is it creativity and art and education? and engaging elected officials, all of these things. It's this portfolio of work. And I think all of that has impact if we think more creatively and, and reduce those, those, the gatekeeping because it's, it's really problematic. We're not gonna get there fast enough. Yeah, and I think also it's about like thinking about our solutions a lot more intersectionally, right? It's, yeah. it's, and like, how can we get co-benefits from that? When the county was working on the transition to zero emission buses, for example, um, it could have you know, picked the easiest place to pilot that and said, okay, we're gonna start on the east side because that's where we've got the infrastructure, that's where it's gonna be the easiest. It's also a place that tends to be a little bit wealthier <laughs> and, um, and already has great tree canopy coverage. And so um, we were a part of leading this like equity analysis and looking at, well, actually, where is the air quality already the worst in the county? And what if we start there? And where, where are there the most folks who ride public transit who would benefit from this? And um, they switched their whole plan and said, we're gonna start in South King County. We're gonna start implementation there and then to the rest of the county. So it's also like changing the way that we approach solutions in the first place too, right? Um, if we're already doing solar panels, then like how do we close the gap for affordable housing developers to have solar panels there? And so that folks who are low income are benefiting from the reduced cost of utilities. Can we? Yeah, um, and the other downstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have a question. I'm gonna pull on, I'm gonna pull on that thread a little bit here because I think um, we've been saying in this a lot and I think it's sort of some of our shared jargon, also a reflection of sort of the careers that we have and the space, the climate, climate spaces that we occupy. I think this is a really astute question. So who do you think is a decision maker? <laughs> um, let's just start there. It's a multi-part question, but let's just pull on that thread for a second because I think there, there's some really important experiences you can share there, but also maybe a way we can broaden how we define that. So who do you think is a decision maker? 
you know, it depends on the context, right? Um, I mean, we're all making decisions every day of where we're investing our money, where what we're buying, what we're, um, how we're raising our families, who we're, who we're supporting, how we're voting, right? All those things are small decisions every day. Um, and then there's also who are the folks who have access to power and privilege to shift systems fundamentally, right? So this is ad allocating budgets. That's a big one. A budget is a value statement. Where are we putting the money, right? Um, who is setting policy? Um, who, who can afford to pay for the lobbyist to then go to Olympia and then make sure that the policy includes their priorities, right? It's usually not the communities on the front lines who, who have that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, I, think like, I think one of the things that we don't recognize enough is that there is leadership everywhere. Yeah. And that we we focus a lot on like who's our elected politician right now, but some of the most powerful leaders that I know are the people who don't have formal titles and who don't have the PhD, no no shade, but <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> um, and uh, and who are the ones who are actually, you know, part of bringing together their communities. And you know, one person I really looked up to was an elder that I used to work with um, in the Chinatown National District. And she was you know, just a housing case manager, worked with a lot of clients. She wasn't like, you know, she was at the bottom of the reporting tier in our organization. But, and I, everyone called her auntie. And she was so powerful. You know, all the elders would go to her first to ask questions. If they, you know, we did, we tried to do a whole like, un, you know, discussion around understanding carbon pricing in in Cantonese and Toysanese with a bunch of elders, and she was able to command a room and to connect people. And so much of that is relationships, right? Um, and I also think there's like incredible power in storytelling and how every single one of us in this room has some sort of climate story where we can talk about the ways, I saw another question here was talking about like the heat dome and how you experience the heat dome. And um, you know, I, I do this exercise with some of my young people where I say, you know, stand up if you've experienced this or this or this example. And one of the things I talk about is like a climate event or a climate, um, extreme climate event. And some, like maybe half of them or two thirds of them, and I'll be like, all of y'all got to stand up because we all went through wildfire smoke season. We've all been through a heat wave. We didn't all experience it in the same ways, which is important, right? It's important to highlight, um, but we all, we're all experiencing it now. And I've seen such a huge shift in just the last five years now that we have a wildfire smoke season, right? Um, of more, uh, just a catalyzing of investment, of um, really trying to double down on climate action because now all of a sudden we're all benefit, we're all impacted, right? Um, but at the same time, to go back to this heat dome question, um, I don't have air conditioning. We also don't want everyone to get air conditioning because that actually worsens climate change as well. But um, but it's really important that we recognize that not everyone is impacted in the same ways. And so 
we really need to be investing in adaptation with the same sense of urgency that we are in mitigation. Um, it's here, climate change is here. We've already baked some stuff into the, into the system. Um, so how do we, and I think sometimes there's this false dichotomy of like, well, if we've invested in that, then we've given up. I'm like, no, right. like you can do both. It's Wasn't not that an, Al Gore? It's not an either or. Um, <laughs> Didn't Al Gore say that? He's not the only one. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I just really think that we need to be prioritizing um, you know, and creating a safety net for folks. And, you know, Seattle's done a great job with that of like doing cooling centers and heating centers in the winter and exploring resilience yeah, hubs. Clean air shelters. Clean, yeah, yep. clean air shelters. There's, um, and so we need to be tackling the root of the problem at the same time that we're coming up with solutions. Okay, so there's, I think this is a great segue for there's a question here. It says it's a big topic. Yes. Um, so in light of that, right, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna broaden this a little, I'm gonna take some moderator liberties here. Um, so what's a good first step that I can take in my daily life? And also a good first step I can take in my community. And I'm gonna ask you to maybe think about that sort of climate solutions coin piece, like mitigation adaptation. So daily life, step in the daily life, and then what's a way to catalyze change or engage in community? I feel like this question was built for you, but, <laughs> but I wanna hear your answer. Um, you know, I, I know it can be an overwhelming problem, right? Like I did a workshop um, down in Vancouver, Washington, earlier this year and at the end uh, some someone came up to me and they're like I'm fully behind this and I believe in it but I just I'm so overwhelmed that I don't even know where to start right now <laughs> and and I'm like and I kept forgetting I'm like yeah I did throw a lot at them like it is a very big um, and I think we're worried about, well, I need to do the one thing that's gonna be the biggest thing and it's gonna like solve climate change. And, and I think like it's okay to say like, I'm gonna start with this one thing or I'm gonna start with these three things. Um, it could be paying attention more to like what you're buying. It could be what's the one person or three people I wanna have a conversation with after this. It could be, I've never, you know, it could be someone saying, I've never reached out to my elected ever. Maybe I wanna try that once right and maybe more than once hopefully <laughs> but like but like taking something that's out of your comfort zone and going for it I also think it's about thinking about where can I give my time and my resources um, and you know whether that's volunteering um, or is it um, donating to organizations that are doing this. BIPOC-led organizations are chronically underfunded in comparison to um, historical mainstream environmental organizations. There's a whole effort to shift funding, right? I think it's like 3% of funding Do you have a place people can go? Um, I think it's like called BIPOC, I think it's the climate I bought climate pledge or something. I'd have okay. to look this up, but if you Google it, there's a pledge. Okay, great. <laughs> um, uh, to like to try to shift funding, right? Um, there's there's so many great organizations across the entire country and the world who are really trying to be um, grassroots led that need the resources. I remember, um, you know, when I worked in my youth program, just scrounging around for food to be able to feed my youth and keep the program fund going and just get a couple more dollars, right? And um, and then you go to these big giant environmental organizations and they have so many resources. And I think 
I think part of that though is like if you are in a place where you have access to resources or um, you're at a company that matches donations or you're at um, or you're at an organization or, or you work in government, right? You have huge opportunities to levers, right? Like who can you influence? How can you work together? I've seen employees start employee groups to like prioritize sustainability and to try to push their whole company or organization to make a big change, right? Again, it's like that collective power piece of like find your people, right? Find your people who are super passionate about this issue too. And and like just be like, I'll host everyone for brunch. Let's 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 just talk about this and what do we want to do about it? Or hey, I heard they're playing, they're doing this a volunteer event. Let's just go give our time, right? Um, and then maybe it's also visibility because a lot of the grassroots efforts are not getting the kind of visibility that other solutions are. Yeah, I think you know people. I you know, there are hundred actions in the book, and people always ask me for the one, and I just I can't. So I think I say. Um, Use your energy wisely, and I mean that literally, like the energy in your home, maybe the energy that's used at work, and be a catalyst for change. So right, we want to transition away from fossil fuels, we want a clean energy economy, so use your energy wisely. We also have to use our personal energy wisely. It's a finite pool, right, and we have to make sure we tend to our own health and well-being and of our families and use that energy wisely. And maybe focus on the majority of people who are interested in looking for a trusted person to have a safe conversation with about why should I care and what can I do. Um, only 9% of adult Americans fall in the dismissive or denier category. So there's a big, bright globe of over 76% of Americans want to know more and they want to have a trusted conversation with someone like you. Um, that's a great place to start and use your energy, that other form of energy wisely. And I think how make sure you identify a community and then find ways that you can show up in that community, not only to work towards climate solutions, but also to serve um, as a way to protect that community uh, moving forward. How can you best show up even in a moment of crisis for that community? And some of that is also your own individual preparedness. Um, I'll live with a, leave with a really fun Sunday activity. I encourage you all to check your insurance policies, <laughs> renters or homeowners, and make sure you have the right riders on your insurance for the climate risks that you are most exposed to. Um, most of us do not. Um, and that's a great way to prepare yourself, build resilience, and make sure you also can respond, support your community, and also critically recover if you are unfortunately experiencing some form of climate disaster. So on that break, cheering note. And someone um, really great in the back uh, looked this up for me. It's called the Climate Funders Justice Pledge. Okay, so the Climate you, Funders people. Justice Pledge. So we now are a minute over, standing between you and hopefully a cocktail or some sort of climate-friendly dinner. Um, so we're out of time, but thank you so much. and. Um, enjoy your climate solutions journey. Um, we really are headed to a bright and more hopeful place. It may not sound like it, but you are part of that change. So thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Heidi. <laughs>
And if you would like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's live events we host or the in-depth reporting we do every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Paris Jackson. We'll be back soon with another conversation.